Glennon Lopate. A new book titled White Power and American Neoliberal Culture argues that white extremist worldviews and the violence they provoke have converged with a radical economic and social agenda to shape daily life in the United States. Its authors, Patricia Ventura and Edward K. Chan, analyze the conjunction of current forms of white supremacy and racial capitalism. The book is published by the University of California Press and brings Patricia Ventura and Edward K. Chan to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. Hello, thank you. Okay, well, uh, initially I'll address each of you, but as we go on, Jump in when you think that uh, you have the best answer. Uh, Patricia, <laughs> Patricia, you begin your book by stating that it began as a tongue-in-cheek discussion in 2009 uh, about what? <laughs> well, actually, yeah, Ed and I were at a, a conference of talking about really depressing subjects because it was, you know, we were in the middle of those um, Trump years and we were at this conference just talking about (laughs) the kind of white power utopias that we talk about in the book where the white power people, um, the white power activists are, you know, imagining what their perfect world is. And as we keep talking about it and imagining where Trump's role in that perfect world that, that these white, forth from the white power perspective, what their utopias look like, we began to think, hey, you know, there's something we can talk about here with this, this figure, Donald Trump, who's so associated with, you know, so many things that supposedly these white power people don't like in terms of their their economic worldviews or their views, you know, like his his daughter and son-in-law are Jewish and they're famously anti-Semitic. All these combinations of unexpected connections. We began talking about it and that's where we began thinking about this book. But aren't you arguing here that the issues involved are much larger than any one individual, not just Donald Trump? Absolutely. A hundred percent. They are these are issues of deep global significance. We're looking at the U.S. scene, but they are they are definitely issues that affect so much of life in the United States, certainly, but around uh, many parts of the world or much of the world as well. Absolutely. And we'll try to get to that as this conversation proceeds. Edward, isn't the term neoliberal confusing? Perhaps we should begin by defining it. How is it different from neoconservative? Uh, It's a great question. I'm actually going to defer this to Trish because she's the neoliberal person. Um, One one thing I'll just sort of say as also as this project came together is um, I mostly study uh, like utopian literature, race and utopian literature. And uh, Trish has written in the past about uh, neoliberal American culture. And we one of the things we found as we were talking about these things is that we were able to like sort of see some overlap between these two fields. But Trish, why don't you go ahead with your take on neoliberalism? Yeah, because the word liberal usually suggests something on the left and you're talking about people on the right. That's right. Yeah, because what we're talking about is this way in which the the self really is defined through the economic sphere, such that neoliberalism famously is this kind of 
especially when we're talking about it as a culture, which is the way we like to talk, well, the way we talk about it in our work, because we're coming at this as cultural studies people. Um, we talk about the American neoliberal cultures as kind of everyday environment shaped by capitalist economic approaches favoring market fundamentalism, deregulation, et cetera. But what it does is it, it makes in all of us as individuals feel like we have to be entrepreneurs of ourselves almost, like we're market you know, products, that we have to be our own brands, as they always say. And so that, that, that puts us in this position of seeing ourselves as part of the, that economy, as products themselves. And so that worldview shapes so much of, of contemporary life today, we would argue. Well, white power and neoliberalism are seemingly separate forces. Do they enable each other? Well, that's that's one of the arguments that we want to make here is that very surprisingly that they that they do seem to to supercharge each other. And, you know, we think about white power and neoliberalism, not as the same thing, certainly not. But that if you think of this kind of Venn diagram, there's 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 certain areas of overlap and we try to focus on those areas of overlap. And especially what we realize is that a lot of that has to do with the family that the family is this, this the area of, of overlap for these two, what are very different forces, absolutely. Well, on its most basic level, isn't neoliberalism, doesn't it reject the idea of society and, and social obligation? Absolutely. That's, and that's, that seems to be at the core of so much of what, uh, so much of the, energies that are today really of, of people who are feeling really lost, I think, is that sense of feeling disconnected, of, of feeling more isolated than ever, of feeling that, you know, they don't have the support of, of certainly not of the welfare state the way that they do in most other industrialized nations. So that that sense of not having um, social obligations really shapes so much of, of the politics today, so much of the actual you know, sadness that we see in the world, too, I would argue. And, and you, you're talking about what you call an alarming growth of both white ethno-nationalist authoritarianism as well as extreme violence that um, is perpetrated within the, 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 the ideas of, of white power ideology. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So, Edward, is something similar happening in other parts of the world? Um, I, I definitely, I think so. I mean, definitely in Europe, um, you know, you have what the, the very famous Breivik um, stuff happening in Norway uh, and, and other, other places Victor as well. Orban? I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, both Trish and I are Americanists, basically. So we concentrate on the U.S. But um, certainly this has taught and I mean, and both, you know, neoliberalism and white power are very much global formations. Um, and uh, there are there are and there are direct ties in like white power uh, that connect people in the U.S. to like people like Tip Brend, uh, uh, what's his name, Tarrant in uh, New Zealand and Australia, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And don't we see something similar in India with Narendra Modi and the way he has divided the country? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there definitely is talk talk about that, and like any so, and any any of these kinds of like nationalisms that are based on a kind of um, ethnic identity, I think definitely feed into this. So even though it's not like white supremacy or whatever, it still is a kind of ethno nationalism. I throw this out to both of you. You say in the book that you see American neoliberal culture as having taken root as a reaction against the social movement activism of the civil rights Vietnam anti-colonialism era. And in the U.S., you see it coming to fruition with the end of the Cold War in 1989, lasting through our present time. Uh, Has it been getting worse? Is it very common today? Well, the kind of, you talk about the white power activism, is it common today? And certainly, I mean, certainly we see it. Think about what's happening in terms of everyday discourse. I mean, the idea that nowadays you could say some words like accelerationism, or you could say words like great replacement, and people know what that is that are not in those, you know, white power circles because of the, I don't want to say normalization, but the increasing frequency of kind of these terms appearing in news media. I mean, Tucker Carlson, right? This is famously talking about great replacement theory. Uh, conspiracy theory. So this is a this is a real change in the mo- in recent years. Would you call it racial capitalism? Well, we do talk about racial capitalism as absolutely essential here. I mean, we could argue that capitalism has always been racial capitalism. That there that capitalism has has depended on having these kind of racialized categories that very much connect to the the kinds of people that can be you know the the owners of capital and the kind of people who are the workers within that regime yeah where does anti-semitism come into this story Um, go ahead trish no no ed go (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, it plays absolutely a big part, especially in the white power movement and um, the racialization of Jewish people um, is is a core uh, element to that. And, you know, maybe even one of the the biggest targets Uh, and uh, and especially the kind of demonization of Jewish people as these like kind of masters behind the scenes, kind of controlling things. Uh, are they're in a way they're kind of the the ultimate capitalists, um, but I, the irony, right, is that um, uh, even though capitalism and uh, white power are, are really don't go together, fit together well, there's a way that they actually do, and that's through um, this like kind of focus on the this idealized nuclear hetero patriarchal family. Now, you're talking to us from Tokyo? That's right, yeah, two, uh, where it's 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> well, I hope this isn't going to put you to sleep, this conversation. Uh, <laughs> I'll try to stay awake. Now, do we see anything like that? Well, I mentioned Modi in India. Uh, mm-hmm. Almost every country has groups that are uh, come out of different consciousness consciousnesses something like that in japan as well um 
There certainly is uh, like there are ultra nationalists here. Um, and I and I do think it's tied to a kind of concept of, of racial identity. Um, but it's it's it that movement is, is still like very much minor and on the fringe here. It hasn't like that kind of stuff hasn't really penetrated, I think, into the mainstream as much as it has in the US and other places around the world like India and in Europe as well. So um and you know it it also gets complicated because the way race works in Japan is a little bit different than it does in in the US and other western countries or even in China. Exactly, right, that's right. Yeah. My guests on today's Leonard Lopez at Large are Edward K Chan and Patricia Ventura. Their book, their latest collaboration, is White Power and American Neoliberal Culture, published by the University of California Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You've come up with the term far white to describe (laughs) the spectrum of white identity politics and ideologies is that how Trump's followers interpreted his promise to make America great again? Well, I mean, I, we were thinking of this far white as a category that might be more specific even than the MAGA, I mean, a part of MAGA, the kind of those people who endorse political violence but are not necessarily part of any kind of white nationalist organization, but they still endorse political violence. So, I mean, really January 6th, to me, exemplifies that kind of far whiteness that we're addressing. Well, didn't Trump open his presidential campaign by calling Mexican immigrants rapists? Was that uh, a, an alert to people who have racist attitudes? Oh my, yeah. I mean, there's, there is no question that Trump understood there's a specific audience out there that was not being addressed by dominant political discourse in that same, you know, very direct way. And they were clearly yearning for it. You know, they were yearning for someone who would speak that language very directly and use less of the dog whistles that we've come to associate with so much of that kind of, that same kind of discourse. You know, you think back, you know, the dog whistle might be something like, you know, a welfare queen is a classic dog whistle, but something like Mexicans are rapists. I mean, that's, there's no whistle. That's just blunt, right? That's just the statement. And so he absolutely understood there was an audience out there for this, for this kind of message. And we had just come off of two terms by a first black president. That's exactly right. That's not, that's not a coincidence. I mean, that moment that 2008 moment really worked as, um, you know, an alarm, an alarm bell to these kinds of far white and other groups like that, other you know groupings of people like that. Yeah, absolutely. And so you figured that those two terms of Barack Obama, Trump is that kind of reactionary response to the alternative. Mm-hmm. But Barack Obama d- didn't play racial politics very heavily? Um, No, I would say he did not in that same way. But I mean, it doesn't matter because, um, you know, he was, we have a, a 
a quotation um, from David Duke to the effect of the former Klan, you know, leader, to the effect that uh, he was a walking billboard for white supremacist ideologies because they see him and then they want, they're terrified and they want something different. So he didn't even have to talk about race specifically or explicitly. But once we have one black president, we would then we may very well start having more. <laughs> right. It just opens up the door. Right. And uh, and there was an uptick in white power extremist violence after uh, the election of Obama. Um, and, you know, it didn't it hasn't gone to the extent that it has now. But so and, and again, so Trump and I, I don't want to focus too much attention on Trump, but I mean, he he did sort of enable like sort of all of this stuff to come out of the woodwork, certainly. Well, weren't white power activists among the most violent activists in the January 6th insurrection? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and and many others, right? And many of the other shootings. So, you know, it's it's kind of depressing, but we do, we felt like we had to go through a catalog of all these, uh, inc- all these mass shootings that involved people who, had some kind of tie to a kind of white power ideology. And it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, you know, it's of course horrible, but it, it, I, we just felt it was something that had to be done. And unfortunately it's still going on, of course. Well, Hitler uh, and, and uh, Nazism were the enemy during world war two. We're very proud of the fact that we won that war. And yet, um, any number of these people carry swastika flags or have we just heard about somebody who had uh, a shooter who had swastika tattoos that's right yeah and um you know so neo not this kind of neo-nazism isn't uh like the white power movement isn't just neo-nazis but certainly neo-nazis are 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 a part of it in our conception of it um so some of them some of the white power people might reject nazism and others or might not identify as as Hmm. like nazis right yeah but 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 they still identify with some kind of white supremacy or white separatism or whatever they might want to call it so that's you know the terminology of course gets very confusing and that's one of the reasons we we use the term white power and you know we're of course not the first people to do that um but there's like white supremacy white nationalism you know white extremists like and so how do we talk about all these different kinds of activities and ways of thinking uh and to some degree well, i mean white power just is a, a convenient way to talk about this like kind of current moment uh that you know goes back i, I would say to to the 60s. And uh, George Lincoln Rockwell, who was the founder of the American Nazi Party, uh, you know, he had a manifesto kind of called white power that was a response to black power uh, and a response in general to uh, this kind of perception that um, non-white people were starting to take over America. But don't you make a distinction in this book between white power and white privilege? Yeah, uh, definitely. I think, I mean, you know, white privilege. So white, when we say white power, we're, I, I think we're really talking about groups that are very actively trying to uh, engage in violence, start race wars, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and, you know, whereas white privilege is just this kind of thing that's built, it's like institutional structural racism that's built into American society. So, um, yeah, I think they're very different things. Yeah. How do the mass shootings that have become almost daily news fit into this picture? Trish, you want to take this one? <laughs> well, I mean, they they fit in in the ways in which the there's so many ways. There's certainly well, in terms race of the, is often a factor in the absolutely. shootings. Yes, absolutely. I mean, so that would be one you know one obvious way is that is that racialized component. Whether it's people you know regardless of who they're targeting, right? So in some cases they're targeting you know you'll hear of of, of synagogues being targeted. In some case you'll hear of of a Walmart where a lot of, of Latin people shop or you'll hear, you know, I mean, th th it depends on which which group is being targeted, but they all fall under the same kind of um, umbrella. But there's a, a also a larger just general cultural instability because of the the system. I mean, in, in, because of a lot of things, but in part because of the economic instabilities as well. So you have the kind of wild oscillations that are really some of the hallmarks of the neoliberal economic picture. You know, if you think about it in contrast to the New Deal post Great Depression, you know, the so-called, you know, those, those big state programs that have been, that are really popular, like Social Security, for instance, like Medicare, for instance, you know, these are product, these are programs that cause, that create more stability. And the more these social programs get eroded, the more instability there is in the general, you know, cultural milieu of the United States. And so the more instability, the more there is this opportunity, you know, for for people to feel disaffected. I mean, there's so much that is going on. There's so many different factors here, but you see this combination of instability in generally with also this fear of, you know, whiteness not having the same kind of cultural capital it might have had at one point, in part related to our earlier conversation about Barack Obama and just other, you know, the presence of multiple pluralistic cultures, you know, in the United States. You cite a sense of aggrieved entitlement. Yeah. I'm using your phrase. <laughs> and actually, this is uh, this is a phrase from from other scholars. It's not just it's not it's not a, a really our phrase per se. It's a phrase that you see in a lot of the scholarship about this area. Do but like white rage, uh, uh, white fragility, even to some degree. Um, all, but yeah, and all of this like sort of ties into like a larger perception of these fears of uh, that, in its extreme form, become fears of like white replacement and all that kind of stuff. So, do neoliberals argue that people are inherently unequal and in need of hierarchy? Absolutely, it's um, very much and very friendly to autocrats, to authoritarianism. You know, I mean, you, you think about the classic case of Chile, right, in Pinochet. <laughs> that was an authoritarian regime that was very much tied in with, with neoliberal 
forces. And so, you know, that that's been famously discussed by a lot of a lot of people before us, certainly. But those kinds of of movements are because what happens is is that, that these authoritarian or autocratic leaders, okay, also think about Putin, you know, I mean, these think about these leaders, they they enable a certain kind of of fluidity of financial capitalism. They may stop people. They don't want immigrants, but they're happy to have money pouring in and their money to go out, their, their you know, their capital to go out into foreign banks for their personal enrichment. So they are they serve certainly these um, these larger economic forces happily. Well, since these terms get all a bit confusing, do they do they see themselves as defenders of democracy? No, uh, no. I said that very vehemently, didn't I? No, they do not. So democracy no. doesn't apply to matters of race and and sexuality. And also to matter, they would like it to not apply to matters of the economy so much either. You know. So white people should have most of the money. Is that it? It it often works out that way anyway, doesn't it? Indeed, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's and I think one of the important things that we're trying to like do here is bring together discussions and analyses of economics and capitalism and things like that with uh, the analysis of race and things like white power and that we need to think about both of these things together because um, you know, certainly we've done a lot of thinking, people have done a lot of thinking about the problem of white extremism and the problems of capitalism, but bringing them together is, uh, we think, crucial uh, in order to understand what what really is happening in some of the ways we've already been talking about, the incidences of mass, uh, mur mass shootings and, and such. Uh, and also the way that just the way that everyone is feeling and, you know, it doesn't matter what race we're talking about. Um, everyone is sort of you know, suffering from the immiseration of capitalism. Well, why have LGBTQ people come to be seen as a threat? It doesn't matter uh, well, whether they're white or not, right? Yeah, I mean, because they're they're very much a threat to they're they're a, they actually are a threat to whiteness in the sense that they are um, antithetical to the 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 nuclear the traditional nuclear family right so and you know one of the famous things in in white power uh, one of the famous slogans is David Blaine's uh, fourteen words so uh, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children, right? So that's become a mantra. And even just the the numerals 14 has become a, a sign that you're, you know, part of this kind of white power um, ideology. And so LGBTQ plus people um, uh, are a threat to the reproduction of, of the white race. And therefore, they also are targets, as in the same way that non-white people are. Reproduction as they want to see it as, you know, male-dominated families, women, you know, pushing so, out babies. I mean, very, very specific. So men and women are not equal, Patricia? Not, not in their worldview. <laughs> 
And, and how does that apply to the, the recent fight over reproductive rights? I mean, we well, are, we are, yeah. Oh, Ed, do you want to address that? Oh, uh, well, I, I, uh, if you have something, go ahead. But I was just going to say that, um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the fight over the repro reproductive rights, I think, is, again, a symptom of uh, this, like, kind of, perception that the the family is being um you know sort of attacked um so if you if we allow abortion then uh it it's you know it's it's decimating the family and there and and then for white power people it's also decimating the white race because it's not allowing for the reproduction you want to add to that patricia well just i mean just that i think that when you have women having autonomy over reproduction or a certain level of autonomy, you know, that that is a threat when you only see women's roles as to reproduce at you when you think they should. So it's, it's a threat to the that perspective on multiple levels. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. you're enjoying my conversation with Patricia Ventura and Edward K. Chan. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've uh, been discussing, White Power and American Neoliberal Culture. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org. Let's give and the number two WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Do that during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Melinda Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to our guests, Patricia Ventura, Edward K. Chan, their book, White Power and American Neoliberal Culture, published by the University of California Press. Patricia Ventura is an associate professor of English at Spelman College in Atlanta. Edward Chan is a professor of American Studies at Waseda University in Tokyo. And um, are, are people, your students studying things like this in Tokyo, Professor Chan? Um, unfortunately, they're not. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, you know, it's it's interesting uh, because the the way that race is talked about, well, race, I, I think, is not really talked about so much as it is in the in U.S. academic institutions as it is in Japan. Um, uh, so and to to be honest, I mean, since, you know, most of my work is really on the, the literature of, of that deals with this white power stuff. Um, I, I, I hesitate to subject my students to having to read this stuff because it really is not uh, pleasant or enjoyable in, in any way. Uh, but certainly they need to know about 
uh, what's happening. Well, a listener just wrote, ask about CRT banning books, banning mm-hmm. speech, drag. Yes. Um, I mean, that is this moment of this post-Trump moment when, you know, the, the he lost the election, right? I don't want to say post-Trump. I meant post-Trump presidency because he lost the election, but obviously he's still looming. But when, when he lost that election, they the, the forces that energized MAGA certainly needed another way to talk about the issues they want to talk about. CRT became a convenient way to a container, let's say, for those kinds of of discussions that Trump was having that clearly American enough American people didn't want to have that, you know, he lost and many of his candidates have lost. So CRT becomes a new way to, to talk about about these about these issues. Yeah. And banning the books, I mean, is is it's right right there with it because you still you're talking about when I say talking about these issues, I probably should say not talking about the issues that we're talking about because that's the whole point, right? That they don't want to address racism. So talking about what these issues meaning white seeing the white people as victims again right so we don't they don't have crt quote unquote because that upsets too many children is the rationale for the anti-crt discourse that you see in the and the the banned books oh that upsets too many children if you talk about about slavery or racism so let's not talk about it they're too young i mean you hear these these just this this kind of they'll, get up, they'll be upset They'll be upset. Yeah. And and this I think the you know, these initiatives also show that I mean, this it's not even really about Trump. I mean, Trump was really just a figurehead for a larger like sort of groundswell of feeling uh, across the the country uh, against uh, well, for some kind of reconsolidation of, of whiteness and white identity. And why has it become a. Uh... A, a Democrats versus Republican thing in the history of this country for a long time. The Democrats were the uh, the Southern Democrats argued many of these points, um, and even as recently as Bill Clinton, we had the Southern strategy. So, uh, is it a bit more complicated than simply Republicans seeing it, or some Republicans anyway seeing it one way, and Democrats another? Yeah, the Southern strategy really, I mean, famously, right, was created as a way to get these voters who had been solidly Democratic post-Civil War to switch over. So it was it was the same. To, come, same to come back to the Democratic Party. Yeah. Southern strategy was, yeah, an attempt to get them to be Republicans, to leave the Democratic Party, to become Republicans. Um, because that you know after the Civil War, and I know it sounds like that's ancient history in some ways, but no, it's not. But after the Civil War, they became solidly Democrats because obviously, right, Lincoln was a Republican. So um, that the the Solid South was Democratic throughout you know much of post Civil War history until that that moment in the basically Nixon moment was when you see the birth of the Southern strategy. There had been, you know, various 
various um, moments of going back to Southerners voting for Democrats, like Jimmy Carter the first time he ran. But um, by and large, right, you've seen that's been the shift since since the Nixon era. And 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 uh, Southern Democrats like George Wallace then switched parties. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Switch parties. You know, you've had you had other people doing that before that, you know, Strom Thurmond before that. But but that 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 major movement through was was, yeah, was post 68, 68 and post 68, I should say. You write that the Turner Diaries by William Luther Pierce was the most influential white power novel. When was it published? Oh, God, I. God, actually, uh, we, let's see. Ni- it's 1970s. Um, uh, 1978, I know. Okay. 1970. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I so so fairly yeah, recently, 19- actually, considering what it's about. Yeah, um, and it and very prescient in in a lot of ways as well. And of course, it's become a source book, unfortunately, for a lot of white power extremists. But. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, Pierce had been around in the movement. He, you know, he was originally a, a neo-Nazi. He was part of the American Nazi Party, he followed uh, George Lincoln Rockwell. Um, and so there, there's a whole lineage um, that goes back, you know, cer- as, certainly at least until uh, like the 1960s and, and, and Rockwell. But, but we also are, I think, trying to say that um this the what we're seeing today and what we're calling white power is just the newest like sort of formation of a kind of white larger like kind of white supremacy that goes back to uh the very beginning of the country um but um so that you know there there are like echoes of earlier formations of white supremacy whether it be the kkk or whatever um <clears throat> But yeah, but the Turner Diaries, for whatever reason, has become the book that everyone turns to. Um, Because in it, all groups opposed to Earl Turner, the the novel's protagonist, Mm -hmm. including Mm -hmm. Jews, non-whites, liberal actors and politicians, are murdered. That's right. And sometimes uh, hanged. Right. Um, And women, you know, women, uh, white women who have had. you know, interracial relations are are strung up and hung with signs that say, I defiled my race or something like that. Um, it's pretty horrible. I mean, take it to January 6th that they some people in response to the January 6th events were saying day of the rope and day of the rope is a very classic figure from the Turner Diaries of the day when people were, you know, hanged for their interracial relations. So, so this this I, this the, that book stands as a kind of a hallmark for sure. Well, considering the fact that we're talking about uh, something uh, a movement that's also very patriarchal, are you surprised by how many women are in this movement, and how we even wind up with a couple of uh, well, more than a couple, any number of women in American politics who would pretty much subscribe to all of these things, not just Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, that's, I, I think, part of the power of this ideology that um, even though it has this patriarchal like kind of worldview, um, it's still powerful enough to draw women in 
and uh, as long as you know they know their place. Um, and in in these kind of white power movements in general, um, you know, women have you know there have been a lot of women in, involved in it, and like sociologists have studied this, um, and uh, it's and, and I think part of the attraction is that this kind of white power worldview gives them a place and a secure, stable identity in this in a world that, you know, mostly is chaotic and doesn't make sense. Um, so, you know, even if they have to take a, a, a lower place, let's say, than uh, the white male, they still have, uh, you know, uh, something to live for and, a, and a, an importance and a purpose in the world. You want to add to that, uh, Patricia? Or, well, um, I'm, let me tell the audience that my guests are Edward K. Chan and Patricia Ventura. Uh, their latest book, White Power and American Neoliberal Culture, published by the University of California Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You wrote this book using sources like White Terrorist Manifestos, White Power Utopian Fiction, Neoliberal Think Tank Reports, and Neoconservative Policy Statements. Are these things all easily available? The manifestos are, are now hard to come by. And, you know, it's understandable that uh, there's been a, an, a, an effort to, like, not have them proliferate. Uh but you know, certainly can, they, they can still be found, uh, uh, unfortunately. Um, and, uh, and to, you know, I, and while I understand the, the, the desire to not like have them so easily available at the same time, I, I do think that we really need to be looking at them and, and, and trying to understand them. And even, even when they're filled with, you know, uh, I forget the term, but, you know, like it, when they're ironic and not even really being serious and just trolling, um, they, you know, we still need to understand like kind of what's coming out of uh, what's coming out of these. And then how those ideas then relate to other things like neoliberal think tank reports and and, and stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, it is hard to get. Uh, and even the novels, like some of the novels that we've talked about. Uh, in the book um, are no longer available, you know, like on Amazon or whatever. Um, and, and, and again, I'm, I have mixed feelings about that because, uh, you know, I'm glad that, you know, not many people are reading it, but at the same time, I, I feel like we need to be reading them to, to sort of understand them. You mentioned Vladimir Putin earlier. Why has he become something of a hero to many of the neoliberals? Yeah, this yeah, the, there's so many of these figures like that, you know, and Orban too, right? That love affair with Orban that you hear so much about, and you know, these are people who are pr proudly anti-immigrant, proudly anti-Islam. You know, they are they have done they have done actions that are that can be. A, seen in racialized terms. And of course, they're famously very white associated, very white identified. And they don't run away from those kinds of labels, even though race means tends to mean different things in different places. Nevertheless, there is still a, a, a Eurocentrism, let's say, that, that these figures don't seem to 
want to run away from that, that they embrace. And so figures like Putin, and, and they're also very autocratic, right? So there's that strong patriarch. They're very anti, they're, they're homophobic. They're anti-gay uh, rights, very, very explicitly very pro-patriarchy, very explicitly so. So these kinds of positions may endear them, you know, to, to a certain kind of right-wing personality. And then also to the white power people as well. Like, so one of the novels we analyze is uh, called KD Rebel by David Lane, who uh, had a very storied career and who coined the 14 words that is now a mantra. Um, in in that novel, there's this like kind of gesture towards like Russia as like gonna as the like kind of place that is gonna save the white race. Like you know, it, it it's gonna participate in that. Russia is going to save the white race. Uh, yeah. So well, does that I mean, mean so that the people that are killing in Ukraine are not white. Um, I well, I don't think it's referring to that necessarily, but I mean, just that there's a spark of hope for the white people in America who have been like, you know, smashed down by multiculturalism and things like that. They can look to like a place like Russia as where, you know, whiteness will like kind of rise again and um, and then will, you know, sort of help can, uh, the white people in the U.S., I guess that's why conservatives are called reds now in this country. Yeah. Liberals are the reds. I, you know, I'm old enough to still be shocked by that, to be honest. Now, this isn't your first collaboration. How did you, the two of you, come to work together? Uh, <laughs> and, and at such a great distance, Edward in, in Tokyo and Patricia, you're, you're mostly in Atlanta? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we meet up at conferences um, often because we're in the same kinds of groups professionally. But uh, really, uh, I, you know, we, hey, the Internet, the Internet's our friend, you know, in this regard. And so we do we do communicate that way a lot. But but we met um, as as through mutual friends and just stayed and just stayed buddies over the years, you know, and uh, the, the collaboration is interesting because I don't know how Ed feels, but I feel like we both don't have a ton of ego. So when the other one says, yeah, that that's no good. Don't don't include that. You know, we'll just take it out. So that that helps the the, the writing go a lot smoother. <laughs> It does. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I actually used to live in Atlanta and I taught at a university there for a number of years. And so we were there at about the same time before I uh, decided to come to Japan. I wonder if we're going to see more and more of this people writing at a distance using the Internet. It is, so, yeah, I, 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 it's an interesting development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, and, you know, with things like file sharing over like Google Docs or whatever. I mean, it's it's very easy to like collaborate uh, on writing projects. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and well, of course, we have to deal with the time delay. Like I was mm. so uh, Tokyo is 13 hours ahead of the East Coast there in the US, but uh, it works out now. I, I think we've covered a lot of territory, but I suspect there are some things that you wish we had also addressed. Um, we have about two or three minutes left. Do you want to uh, talk about any of those things? Well, I guess one thing I wanted to mention is that uh, this goes back to your point about the Democrat-Republican split. I mean, we sh 
should, I think, keep in mind that neoliberalism uh, is not something that's just like Republican. Democrats are also very much implicated in the whole formation of neoliberalism as well. Um, so, you know, Clinton, even Obama and others as well. So, yeah, well, it Obama doesn't come down neoliberal? to neoliberal like in what way? I'm sorry, I did. I didn't How was Obama neoliberal? Although I'm sure people who've tuned in late and and don't know the the term are wondering, wait, aren't neoliberals new leftists? <laughs> <Although> we've <already laughs> yeah, they're definitely not new leftists. Yeah, uh, and liberal, yeah, no. So well, I mean, you know, in, the, in the we're using liberal in the old sense from uh, from the uh, what from the 19th century, right? Right, the tradition of liberalism, right, as a political ideology of like freedom and and, and keep government know, out of our lives. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And so, I, I mean, I don't mean to like call out Obama as like a evil person, but I mean, you know, but it's I think it's true that not just him, the Democratic Party as well, uh, participates in the perpetuation of a neoliberal capitalism. I mean, so that's all I'm really trying to say. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's it. So Trish, I don't know if you have anything. Um, yay team. I don't have, I I think that we've covered so much territory today in this interview. And I mean, that's what the book is about, right? Is, is about, it is covering a lot of territory by putting together these two, forces that don't often get put together. But again, we argue that it's that view of, of the family that that white patriarchal, you know, women reproducing and all the time just, ha- you know, having lots of babies and the men out there working that perspective is at the core really of both of these of these these or these formations, as we call them, you know, because one, the white power one we know is because they're trying to reproduce whiteness. But with neoliberalism, it's that they're that the forces of neoliberalism want to make the social state smaller, erode it, erode it, erode it. And so who then takes over those caring functions, the, the support for people in need? Well, you give it back to the family where they are, you know, where no one's getting paid really to do this work. And so that and you can then slash taxes, you can then get the rich to become even richer. And that's that 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 movement is at the core that that family is at the core of what we see is kind of like that Venn diagram between white power and neoliberalism. Are there certain areas of the country that uh, have more white power populations than others? I mean, it's interesting. For sure. I mean, sure, there are places. Yeah, I, you that would we- assume the South, but it, it seems to me that as I watch uh, other states go from left to right and right to left, that we are in a, a constant transition. Yeah, and certainly the, the the white power folks are all over. And there, I mean, there's a whole there's a whole like kind of mythology about creating the Northwest, the Pacific Northwest as this new white nation, like separated from the rest of the United States. Um, so Idaho, like, uh, you know, they're Idaho and uh, Montana have long had a lot of ties to those kinds of groups. But um, but certainly they're spread all over. So we see these things happening in Texas and uh, in Philadelphia and uh, Pennsylvania, et cetera, et cetera. And Ohio has changed. Um, yeah, yeah. 
my great thanks to both of you for a fascinating conversation. Uh, my guests have been Patricia Ventura and Edward K. Chan. Their book, White Power and American Neoliberal Culture, published by the University of California Press. Uh, Patricia Ventura is Associate Professor of English at Spelman College in Atlanta. And Edward K. Chan is Professor of American Studies at Waseda University in Tokyo. Thank you so much. Thank you Thank for you. having us. This has yes. been great fun. Thank you so much. Maybe maybe less fun for Ed because it's two eight three a.m. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm going to sleep now. So, but thank you very much. Pleasant dreams. Don't let uh, the, the the fear of white power keep you awake. and uh, that brings us to the end of our show my great thanks to Keziah Glow our executive producer and Reggie Johnson our audio engineer for all of the invaluable work they do throughout the week if you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one hour deep dive interviews you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and wherever else you get your podcast. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign up today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this station coming to you and this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org. Because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, White Power and American Neoliberal Culture by Patricia Ventura and Edward K. Chan. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month. Um, and that allows us to plan for the future. And we will say thank you if you do that for $10 a month or more by sending you a WBAI tote bag. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI is the only station in the New York Radio Dollar that's 100% listener-sponsored. Please keep us alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. Our, uh, our show will be off uh, parts of next week, but um, tune in and find out when we're here. <laughs> Have a great weekend.